Everything you ever wanted One moment Did you capture it? Just let it slip Yo His palms are sweaty Knees weak, arms are heavy There's vomit on his sweater already Mom's spaghetti, he's nervous But on the surface he looks calm and ready To drop palms But he keeps on forgetting what he wrote down The whole crowd goes so loud He opens his mouth but the words won't come out He's choking how Everybody's choking now The clock's run out Time's up, over, plow Snap back to reality Oh, there goes gravity Oh, there goes rabbit He choked, he's so mad but he won't Give up daddies, he know He won't have it, he knows His whole back to these ropes It don't matter, he's dope He knows that but he's pro He's so stagnant, he knows When he goes back to this mobile home That's when it's back to the lab again, yo Good old Eminem Getting us hyped up for today's conversation With Major Bram Conley DSM Very interesting episode Bram is an ex um, Australian Special Forces Commander And uh, Very uh, interesting episode Can be a little bit dark at times um, But realistic I think it gives listeners a good Idea about what actually what actually goes on in these military environments and how people sleep in these bizarre environments as well. And uh, although I've had a little bit of experience in military operations and infantry, it's uh, nowhere near the same experience as Bram, obviously. And so Bram tells some uh, very interesting stories on this episode. Now you may also be interested in knowing that Bram is not just a soldier or ex-soldier these days. Um, Bram is also a very successful fiction author and he's got a, a couple of books out at the moment and you can follow Bram on Twitter at Bram Conley B-R-A-M like Bram Stoker the guy who wrote Dracula Conley C-O-N-N-O-L-L-Y um, and so you can find Bram there Bram has also got a website called Warrior U and he's got his own podcast called Warrior U which I had the great privilege of being featured on recently um, so in this episode we talk a lot about military stuff, sleep in the military, how Bram got into the military, some types of training he did, sleeping in different environments, and some of the characters he met along the way as well. Very interesting um, episode. If you're interested in joining the military, definitely check this out. If you're interested in how special forces people sleep and how they operate, check this out as well. So after a quick word from our sponsors, we'll be straight into the episode. For my family, cause man, these goddamn food stamps don't buy diapers. And there's no movie, there's no Makai Pfeiffer. This is my life, and these times are so hard. And it's getting even harder trying to feed and water my seed. Plus, see, this all the caught between being a father and a prima donna. Baby mama drama screaming all the too much for me to want to stay in one spot. Another damn monotony's gotten me to the point this of like. 
episode of Sleep for Performance Radio is also brought to you by Sleep WA Western Australia. Now, Sleep WA is one of the only few nationally accredited sleep laboratories in Western Australia, meaning that they have put their services and quality systems to the test against the national standards. They provide commitment and dedication by providing you a high quality service. Now, I've worked with these guys before, they are excellent, um, they are a very diligent business and one that is trusted here in Western Australia. Sleep WA is one of their only sleep and respiratory centres to provide holistic care and treatment for all sleep and respiratory disorders, not just obstructive sleep apnea, which many people have heard about in, uh, in the news or in, in the scientific literature or even on this podcast. So Sleep WA believe that all patients deserve compassion, support, multiple treatment options and education to allow them to actively participate in their own journey to better health. Sleep WA provides a comprehensive service to diagnose and recommend treatment of all respiratory diseases and sleep disorders. This includes rare sleep disorders and those complicated by cardiovascular disease. The Sleep WA philosophy is to offer patients expert diagnosis, effective therapy and supportive guidance on the road to better health and sleep. They are a leader in respiratory and sleep medicine and provide the following service at locations throughout Western Australia. Consultation with experienced specialists, comprehensive respiratory testing for lung disease, asthma and allergies, inpatient sleep studies, home-based sleep studies, that's pretty handy, insomnia management programs for insomnia and circadian disorders, and fatigue management programs to reduce risk and improve health in the workplace. So get started on your journey towards better health and sleep today and head over to Sleep WA, that's Sleep WA for Western Australia, and get in contact with Dion and Jack over there. This episode of Sleep for Performance Radio is brought to you by Orbiz. Orbiz are a global consulting firm who facilitate the rapid delivery of significant and sustainable improvements in performance across a diversity of industries. They facilitate turnaround, transformation and strategic improvement programs through the development and implementation of a system and culture of lean and continuous improvement. Now Orbiz are growing their global presence across the Asia-Pacific region, Europe, Middle East, Africa and the Americas. Their range of services include optimization of business development systems to deliver growth, through to operate and system improvements that reduce cost by improvements in safety, quality and productivity. So what this means for your business, typically they will give you outcomes such as a reduction in cost, who can beat that, increasing capacity utilization, throughput, increase in revenue, profitability and overall customer value and satisfaction. Orbis have extensive experience in facilitating change in challenging environments by utilizing lean tools and methodology, joint engagements across the world, including diverse um, sectors and industry, such as mining, energy, construction, transport, aerospace, manufacturing and healthcare. Orbis people are industry professionals driven to achieve sustained results through the development of trusted relationships. So head over to www.orbiz.io, that's Orbiz, O-R-B-I-Z.io, for more information, get in contact with them to organise a visit today to your organisation. This episode is also brought to you finally by Fatigue Science. The Fatigue Science Ready Band is a wearable device that helps you improve safety and your performance through the science of sleep. The Ready Band is a way more than just a sleep tracker. It's the world's only sleep measurement tool that's paired with safety, a biomagnetic fatigue model, 
which has a predictive algorithm. So what that means is it's actually predicting to the future what your performance is going to be based upon your data. This was initially developed by the US Army Research Lab and was uh, built to improve the performance of soldiers in operational environments. Now this device has been adapted to work in elite athletes and industrial workers. This is also a device that I have validated in the laboratory myself and I have used extensively in industry and research applications. As listeners of this podcast, you probably know that restorative sleep is about more than just the numbers of hours of sleep you get, factors like when you sleep, how much sleep that you have accrued, and even your local um, geographical location, so a sunset, the time you go to bed, the time the sun comes up, all of these things are all these different factors in chronobiology and that affect your performance. So this ready band was developed to incorporate all these factors that can really help you understand the real impact of sleep on your life. So ready band not only helps you track changes to your fatigue over time, but also allows you to discover new ways to achieve personal fatigue improvement goals. So you can actually measure the improvements that you're making uh, as you go. Now, ReadyBand is, is relied on by lots of different organizations and they've got a very impressive resume. So winners of the Super Bowl, Seattle Seahawks have used this, the Chicago Cubs have used this, military special forces and workers who operate in uh, long shifts in dangerous environments such as tunneling underground, mining, oil and gas. Uh, it's been used in elite sports such as rugby, basketball, um, it's been used at the Australian Institute of Sport, it's been used in uh, elite MMA athletes who compete in the UFC. So it's a wide variety of applications. So if fatigue is important to you and your organization, whether you're a sports team or an industrial workforce, head to fatiguescience.com, that's fatiguescience.com, to speak to a member of their team and to learn more about how the Ready Bank can improve safety and performance in your organization. Thank you for listening to these ads. Now on to the episode. Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today I'm joined by somebody completely different. How do I refer to it? Is it Major? Cap- Would that be like that? Major. Major Bram Conley. Now, Bram has, ma- has lived many lives and we're going to talk about those today. But the first thing I do want to ask you is Bram is not a name you hear much today. People will be familiar with Bram Stoker's Dracula. How- do you know why your parents named you Bram? I blame it on the hallucinogenic drugs of the 60s, translating into the 70s. I have no idea. It's short for Bramwell, though. Yeah, so whatever. Actually, there was also a Bram Bronte, I think, which sort of makes sense now that I'm an author, which was Emily Bronte's brother, but he was not a great author. So I suppose that works as well, doesn't it? Really? (laughs) There you go. I thought you were going to have some Dracula reference, but that didn't seem to work. And for those of you who don't know a bit of trivia, Bram Stoker was born in which country, Bram? Ireland. Oh, good guess. Yes, he did. And he actually wrote Dracula while he was working in Dublin Castle, while Ireland was part of the United Kingdom at the time. I mean, I only know that because I was there last year <laughs> on tour. And I always thought that this accent you have on the podcast was your own accent, but you actually have an Australian accent when you're not on the podcast. That's really interesting to me. Yeah, that's right, mate. That's, that's good. Good pick up. That's my worst Australian accent. My my American accent is actually worse. So today I'm joined by Major Bram. Uh, Connolly. Um, so we'll talk about how you got to be a major. Where were you born and where did you grow up, Bram, here in Australia? Uh, I grew up in South Australia, born in Elizabeth, um, spent the first 16 years cruising around Banksy Park and the York Peninsula, and then decided that I wanted to 
you know, explore the world. So went and worked on a cattle station for well, until I was old enough to join the military, and then joined the army uh, February first, nineteen ninety one. February first, nineteen ninety one. Okay, seventeen straight into the military. And so, what what um, what unit did you join initially? Uh, the very first battalion I went to was a first battalion based in Townsville. So I spent most of those formative years, first you know four years, uh, up in Townsville. You know, training in around the jungle. Was in the uh, operational readiness battalion, and deployed to Somalia in 1993. Um, so really my introduction to the military was pretty fast and an operational service was within a couple of years of being in the, being in the military. Yeah, that's quite quick. Um, I, I presume that was an infantry unit. Yeah, that's right, infantry battalion. Mm-hmm. Okay. So for those people who are non-military, how would you describe an infantry battalion? And for those who are ex-military, here's some horrific replay of your youth. Um, an infantry battalion is made up of, you know, can be anything from four to six companies, depending on the makeup of the battalion. It's a whole lot of guys that either drink Gatorade a lot and run, or uh, or beer and fight. So primarily, it's the workhorse of the of the military, and their, you know, their their mission really is to, I, I guess, you know, w- what the army mission is is to win the land war. So yeah. Combat soldiers, yeah, so general kind of, I think what people refer to them as infantry grunts. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, just uh, good old-fashioned general soldiering. Um, Although I think the, the Australian, in my experience in years to come, sort of the, the Australian infantry is probably a little bit more specialised than that, and they're only really restricted by probably the missions that the government gives them. But the, the, the Australian infantry in particular is probably more specialised than most other nations, I think. What do you mean by more specialised, and in what way? Well, they're, Without giving away government secrets yeah, now. They're less likely to be trained in one facet, so they're not necessarily just a machine gun or just a scout or just a rifleman. You know, they've got a more, a more well-rounded training. Um, they might train with, you know, in in any given year, they might train with helicopters, with amphibious, you know, in amphibious operations with boats. Um, they might train with with tanks and armored personnel carriers, so they're quite well-rounded infantry. They're not specialised in one area, unlike some of the American units that are specialised in that one area, or even some of the British units. Yeah, you know, we have to be sort of jack of all trades, and then you know now you've got the new computer systems that are in place as well. So guys have to be—they're they're probably smarter now than what they ever have been. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, it's interesting. I know from my brief military career in infantry in Ireland, it was very small infantry, so you were qualified, let's say, when I was in support company on mortars, also reconnaissance, uh, radio operator, first aider, like you so say, you had that multidisciplinary approach due to the size of, of the force as well. So you, you pretty, similar. pretty similar, I'd say, between yeah between the two countries. Actually, actually use the same rifle. Really? Steyr 5.56, made in Austria. Yeah, well, I think the Steyr is a great... Well, I, I thought it was a great rifle when I used it. And then, obviously, going to Special Forces, there was the M4, which I got accustomed to, and a fleet of other weapons. But I'd never had any problems with the Steyr. I used it in Somalia, and, yeah, generally pretty handy with it. Pretty easy to clean, as opposed to a GPMG made in 1802 or something. Anyway, <laughs> we shouldn't be giving away any, uh, any, any secrets that are available on the internet. Um, so, Bram, why did you go to the military? Why, like... What is it in a young man that makes him stand up or a young woman and says, I want to be in the military? What, what was it for you? I wish I could answer that because then you'd know the, the secret source of, uh, of you know, people's direction in life. You know, it's a philosophical question, really. Um, for me, I just always knew. And I think that if you just always know, it's probably a, 
maybe there's a higher calling or maybe it's you know I, I don't know I don't profess to be in any way spiritual but I always knew that I was going to join the military and it, it all panned out the way that I'd probably envisage, envisaged it to be honest was your family military background or none not at all they were all you know they were all firemen if I told you that I was a fireman now if this podcast was about being in the emergency services in the fire department then I'd be telling you that I've got a long lineage of firemen including my brother you know uncles grandfather father in the fire brigade but um you know and that's on both sides of the family not just on on the male side um but no I just I guess you know, I think that we are products of our environment. I probably watched one too many episodes of Tour of Duty and started getting into, you know, blooming Airwolf. Airwolf. And um, before you knew, you know it, you know, you've got all these... And, and in the 1990s, late 80s, early 90s, there was a lot of talk around. They were starting to, starting to probably um, think about Vietnam a little bit more and the Australian, the Australian involvement there. And it was, you know, and then they had the Falkland War pretty pretty fresh in everyone's minds and then obviously we had the Gulf War and I think that I just saw a lot of it on TV and, and it sort of oh, I guess appealed to my you know um, free spirit and you know adventurous nature and I think that some of what's wrong with the world today is that we and it's, you know I don't want to be branded a sexist or anything by saying that it's what we do to men only but one of the things we do to men is we sort of stifle this you know this free spirit and this adventurous person and the, the the testosterone needs an outlet and for me it was i needed to go and explore and there's not a lot left to conquer in 2018 and there wasn't in 1991 but there was a big bad world out there i didn't know anything about and so for me a, a natural extension of that adventurous nature was to join join the military and i think if you if you think back to things that you read in high school and especially about the, the the war to end all wars world war one you know a lot of the reasons that people left australia then even though they were going to be in harm's way was that adventurous nature and there's a wider world out there than than just the back blocks of banksy park yeah yeah that's an interesting um interesting answer and many different layers uh, and if uh, you know bits of philosophy there and, and kind of life goals it is kind of interesting because I, I think personally that in this in Western culture today, there is a lack of a right of passage for men. We grow up and we're like 16, 17, and we don't know how what to do. We have this angst and lots of testosterone. We're trying to prove ourselves. We either start fighting with our parents or our schoolmates, or we go to university and we do a lot of drugs or alcohol. And there's just kind of, there's no real focus or outlet. And I know for me, on that same topic, the military was a way to channel that energy. And I'm so glad I didn't go to university straight out of the gate because I would have been an idiot. And I was already an idiot, but at least I was able to put my energy and focus into the military and I think sort of mature under that system. Um, somewhat others would argue I didn't mature, but um, I think it was a great outlet for a, for a young man that was full of testosterone. And it sounds like you were kind of in a similar similar vein. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. You know, Jocko Willick talks about it. You know, all these, you know, Joe Rogan, all these people talk about that rite of passage. I'm ready to go on their podcast when they're ready as well. They just need to reach out. Well, look, Bram, I, I will have to say, and I, I know from this podcast we get lots of requests. I know there's movie deals imminent for your two awesome books that we'll talk about in a while, which are really good. I'd highly recommend reading them. Um, unfortunately for sleep, they might stimulate you and mightn't let you sleep, but I did read the first book. I've got to get the second one. And um, so we got the book we got the books out we got the movie deals coming we got the podcast so i'm glad we had you here first first <laughs> yeah no but just go back to to go back to your point of that rite of passage you know i i really think that there's 
I've written a um, blog about this actually recently on a on a on a website that I run, and um, you know I, I think there's an issue with being human. I don't think humans are as human as they think they are. Like I can, you can put me on a tropical island now, and you know I'll I'll eat, I'll make fire, I'll I'll catch fish, I'll I'll hunt down pigs and kangaroos or whatever it is there. But I think you take 90% of the population out and you put them there and they are floundering. They're going to die. They're not human at all. They're a product of society. They're used to air conditioning. They go from, from, you know, from, a, from a double bed to corporate life to drinks with their mates, but they're not actually out in the world. They're not on earth as far as I'm concerned. So I think there there's, should be a real move to become more human again because being more human not only gives you a rite of passage, but also it gets you in touch with you know, humanity, what it is to be a person. Yeah, we don't have that. There's not a lot of that going on at the moment. Do you think that's why things like ultra marathons and Spartan events and all these are becoming more popular because people are being given an opportunity or an avenue to express that, so they tend to go for it? No, I think I think you guys are all just fucking crazy that do that shit. <laughs> you can edit that out. No, I, I, yeah, maybe. I mean, that maybe that's. I, I think that's why I got into doing you know Ironman triathlons as well as. You know, it, it's one of those things where you get to test your limits and and it's you against yourself. And, you know, I've had my best results when I've raced myself. When I've raced other people and let my ego get in the way of those sort of events, I've come unstuck. But when it's just you against yourself, whether it's you against, you know, the wild or you against nature, you know, whatever gets thrown at you, that's, that's how you become more human. You know, when we start to compete with the Joneses for the best car and the best house and, the, the, you know, the best groomed kids and all this sort of garbage, you know, that's when I think we lose, lose touch with what it is that we're really here to do, you know. And yeah, I think philosophically speaking, and we're going to talk more about, you know, sleep later on as well, but philosophically speaking, I think that we have a reason to be here. And maybe that reason is just, just for some people, maybe that reason is just existence. But it's it's existing, being more human than than not. Yeah, I think a good point. I might have to spin off a philosophy slash man type podcast from this. Yeah, the warrior poor. Yeah, the Renaissance man. The Renaissance man. I like that one. Yeah, we get into Starship Troopers, and we can start. You know, you know, you should be able to do a whole manner of things, not just one thing. Not specialists. I mean, Darwin was like that too. He said that, didn't he? Was about if you're a specialist in one area, you're probably going to become un- unstuck. He probably didn't put it as gracefully as that. But uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree, man. I'm constantly looking for that kind of um, physical and mental challenge in my life, is and constantly changing. That's why I did stop running a while ago and start doing swimming because uh, if you see me swim, it's as graceful now as a rock in a sock. Um, so yeah. Anyway, let's come back to um, when you joined the military first. You moved from South Australia to Townsville. For those who don't know, the climates are quite different. Uh, it's more kind of tropical, you know, humid up in Townsville. What was the first two to three weeks like of that recruit training? You're sharing this big kind of billets rooms with all these different guys from around the country. People are snoring, jumping around. How did you feel? How would you settle in? What was your mental health like? What was your sleep like in those first few weeks? I love this question. Um, before you get to Townsville, you go to the home of the soldier, which is in Wagga Wagga in New South Wales. And it was February. I was there February, March, April. So quite um, pleasant you know, weather conditions, to be honest. It's a pretty mild summer and autumn there as well. Um, and I remember being, oh, you know, I, I was a good-looking, young, skinny, loudmouth kid, so I, I had a rough time through Kapuka, to be fair. I got bullied a bit. And back then, bullying was, you know, you were, you were beaten senseless when you were bullied. 
Um, and that's not by instructors, that's by, it's a, it's a, it was a, a male alpha dominated, you know, in, environment. Um, and I loved it. Like I absolutely loved it. Um, and the thing is I, I gave myself no out. So when I went there, I told, and I give this advice to kids today, you know, tell everyone what you're going to do, put your reputation on the line and, and go there and do it. And, um, so I gave myself absolutely no out. And, um, you know, there's a couple of times there where I wanted to pull the pin, but didn't. Um, and as for sleep, you know, I think they, I think at that age, and maybe you, I mean, you'd know so much more about this than I do, but as a 17 year old, I can, I could sleep anywhere and you, I could work really hard all day. And then at nine o'clock I'm out cold and then I'd wake up at 6am and you just jump out of bed sprightly and go and, you know, shave this smooth face that you've got. You know, and they're telling you to shave every day and you don't need to yet. But you just go through the process of it. But to me, sleep then came really easily. And um, I think that that's probably a little bit to do with youth and a lot to do with the physi- physiological, you know, aspects to... You still, you're still really a child at 17. And I was a young 17, really. You know, I look back on the photos then and go, my God, I look like my bloody, you know... 10-year-old son, 8-year-old son, you know, I don't look 17. But, um, yeah, I don't, think, I don't think sleep was anything too dramatic for, the, for that basic training for me. I slept pretty well. Um, so, so that was in there, like I said, a barrack environment. And you obviously do like kind of a, a portion anywhere from four to six weeks before you go outside. Had you ever camped before that? Have you ever camped out under the stars? Have you ever slept out? And then obviously then you go out and do these, what we call being on the ground or these military tactics and you're sleeping out, which are not... You don't go out and just go, oh, night everybody, turn off the camp light and, and go to sleep. There's like patrols to be done overnight, there's stand to or watches, whatever has to be done. How did you cope with that difference in the sleeping environment when you went out where you were more kind of active and it's hard to switch off? Yeah, I mean, I grew up camping and, and, and I spent a year in the cattle station, sheep station before I joined the military. So I was used to sleeping outside. And then when it came to sleeping in, you know, in the, in the basic training and the recruit training and basic training, it was just, you know, you, you sleep when you can, you know, and you're dictated to when that is. Um, and being woken up for picket at all hours of the day, you know, the, the, the night, evening, night, early morning was just part and parcel of soldiering. So it really wasn't too much of an issue for me at that age. Later on, it became a bit more of an issue. But, um, yeah, I think I coped pretty well with it and I, and I, yeah, you know, I, I can't really recall ever worrying about sleep more than anything else, to be honest, back then. Yeah. So what was your strategy around sleep then, Bram, for yourself and other guys at that age? Because you would have all been between sort of 17, 25, roughly. Was it just sleep whenever you can? Um, and if so, what kind of places, what was the weirdest places you ever slept? Um, slept, oh, well, I mean, the weirdest places, we'll get into that in a second. Um in those early days, sleeping was just a matter of doing it because it was a requirement to be refreshed to then go on and learn more or do more training or whatever. And um, I think in the infantry battalion, you know, you sleep when you can. Um, I'd have some of my best sleeps. Uh, I remember this one time in, in Tully where we were basically flooded in and I slept for three days nearly straight um, under a hoochie when it, with it raining. And, you know, just... just the, you know, it wasn't just the sleep, it was just not being interfered with in any way by anyone and just laying there and having three days to yourself eating rations and, you know, or turning rations into shoes, we used to call it. You know, just, just, lay, just, just basically, no, you know, you're not doing anything in society, you're just there. 
You know, I think the weirdest place or the worst place I woke up, so going to bed late at night in Somalia and then waking up in this riverbank, you know, in, in this river with the riverbanks on either side and, and then looking around as the light's coming up and, um, you know, having a big yawn and sort of sitting up in my sleeping bag and then there's all these uh, sort of hands and arms and legs poking out of the side of the riverbank where they'd buried them all up inside the, the you know, because rather than dig a hole, they dig into the side of the riverbank and then stuff the bodies in there and, and then put, you know, put some more mud in there. And so it was like, oh, geez, what's all that about? You know, and that was quite eerie. But, um, and you only knew that when you woke up, not when you went to sleep. Under, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had no idea. We, we woke up once on a tennis court just surrounded by human, you know, feces as well. The locals had been using that as their place to go to the toilet and... You know, and then I've, you know, obviously slept in snow caves and stuff like that in the Special Forces career where, you know, you have some of your best nights sleeping there and, you know, and then also wake up and realise that you don't know what's up or down or, or in or out and now now digging your way out and not sure if you're digging up or down and, you know, been snowed in overnight. So that was pretty hairy. And I've slept on a portal ledge as well doing, you know, rock climbing because I was a lead climber in Special Forces. So I've woken up on a portal ledge. You know, with wind howling past in 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 the uh, in Arapiles, and then on also in the Grampians, where you know the the weather's changed from the night before waking up, and oh, okay, this is this is getting real now. Yeah. So that t- completely trumps my story because when I asked you that question, I was like, hmm, I think the weirdest place I woke up in the military was in a nightclub. Oh yeah, that's good. Because we were out for like a ten day exercise, and then we of course we wanted to go out yeah. and then have a few drinks, and I fell asleep in a nightclub and then woke up at the end of the nightclub. So your stories trump mine. I can tell you that. <laughs> What I, I tell you where I can't sleep to this day is I can't sleep on a plane. Just cannot sleep on a plane. Never. No matter how long I'm there for. And I, I think it's got something to do with jumping out the back of them. You know, if I get in a plane, I'm, it's not happening. And so before special ops, um, could you, special forces and operations there, could you sleep in a plane? Probably couldn't afford a plane ticket. <laughs> I don't think so. No, I don't know. I'm just, it's something about planes. I just can't sleep in planes or... I can sleep in the back of trucks and stuff like that, as long as you get to lay out, but in a seat, you know, I can't sleep. That's interesting because um, a guy who I like to tease a lot on Facebook, Raymond Matthews, who's now living in Sweden, and I like to wind him up a lot, uh, he is an ex-military guy, officer, I believe Navy, I could be wrong, could be wrong. Um, Anyway, he's up in Sweden at the moment. I remember last year in Ayers Rock, we were at a conference, and he was presenting some information on some preliminary data on the angle of the sea and how you sleep and basically to your point the more kind of upright are the crappier the sleep but the more you go back the more improvement in the sleep and sort of when you get to that business class sea that's not fully flat but even like in the 737 it kind of goes back at roughly i don't know 30 degrees even then there was a massive improvement in sleep as as it compared to being upright yeah. but maybe when this movie deal comes true for you you'll be flying first class so it'll be shouldn't be a problem yeah. have you have you flown business class and, and been able to sleep like that oh, mate we went to Greece last year, my wife and I, and she's a platinum frequent flyer and got upgraded to first class. And um, then she said, then she swapped with me and said, oh, you've never gone first class, you can go first class. And I thought, this is going to be a great be a great night's sleep. And I got up there and then realised that there was uh, Dom Perignon and I could drink as much of that as I wanted in, in the next five hours and there was no sleep to be had. I was just on it. I can drink three bottles of Dom Perignon, let me tell you that. But I didn't sleep. You didn't sleep, so you were just up there for a party round. Yeah. <laughs> at the end of it and got off got off in Greece and was it yeah wasn't very well mm. so you went through your military training how many weeks was military training for infantry in Australia 
so what was it 13 13 weeks back then at Kapuka and then I think about the same for Singleton for for the um, you know initial employment training so about about 26 weeks a lot yeah so about yeah 26 weeks about six months roughly and so you went to these um you went to your own infantry unit um you had these missions overseas um was somalia part of one of those yes somalia was a deployment um for the first battalion in 1993 so i was fortunate to go over as part of the advance party so went over on uh, on c-130s rather than on the ship got there got there fairly early and um, arrived in mogadishu and then yeah i think somalia was really was really good for me it was a you know, it was one, I realised then that I love the simplicity of military operations. You know, you're not... And back then we didn't have telephones, obviously, back in 1993. But, you know, you, you're not... You sort of don't have any responsibilities, don't have any bills. You just have a trunk and a weapon to keep clean and you were told what to do and just got to cruise around doing these missions. I loved it. It was great. Sort of got the bug for it, really. And so you kind of... You know, you went through that initial part in infantry and and then sort of the your interest peaked and then you start thinking about special forces what was the first time you start thinking about special forces and how did you how did you apply and how did you go for your for what they call the selection you're good at asking these, good at asking these confronting questions because i don't tell people this and this is going to lose me some followers on instagram um so in 1994 i thought i'm going to go to special forces because they need me so I applied for SAS and was uh, was selected to go to the um, and did really well on the you know the sort of testing phase and then then went to the SAS selection course and I think I picked up that first pack on that first day and it was 60 kilograms and I was probably about 58 ring and wet <laughs> and I, I lasted about eight kilometres on the on the 20 kilometre march that we did as, which was the initial walk in it wasn't even part of the testing and then. The next day we had some of the testing and, and I pulled the pin. So at 19 years old, you know, I, I think that that really affected me for years to come after that. Like I didn't think I was good enough to go to special forces because of that experience. And it was only when I reconciled the fact that I was 19 when I tried and I was a young 19, you know, and, and, and skinny and, and, you know, I had no business being there, to be honest. And, um, and I was disingenuous with telling people that, you know, probably how, how long I lasted there. I lasted two days, not, not the, you know, not any longer than that, but I, I would always skirt around those issues. Um, and then when I was, then in 1995, 96, the, they raised 4th Battalion and it was a good chance to get away from Townsville and get down to Sydney, um, which I took um, as much as I love Townsville. So I went down to Sydney and then found myself a year later um, as one of the initial people on the, the start for the first commando selection and training course. And that was my chance to make amends, to be honest. And I, you know, again, I gave myself absolutely no out. So I would have died trying. So this was the very first time commandos had been initiated in Australia? Yep. And so were you... Well, were you? No, it, was first, it was the first of the modern um, commando takes the commando unit it, it was you know an infantry battalion was re-rolled to be a modern commando unit because the government had seen fit to, to expand special forces but we did have a reserve commando element that were administered and, and run by um the special air service regiment and we'd also had a, a long history of um commando units in world war ii with Z special forces um or the Z special units and the work that they did through the um you know the archipelago to the north of australia and yeah, you know, that's some amazing stories to come out of that. So, 
you know, I, I'm very, I take pains to say that, yeah, I was, I was on the first commando course, the modern commando courses in, in 1997. Yeah. So was that as a result of like your battalion was kind of pushed to be a changeover unit or yeah, that, that's how, so that's, that's how it kind of brought you back to that. Yeah, we had a, we, we were, our company had about an 80% attrition rate. Um, I was a Lance Corporal at the time and, you know, I was probably when I look back on it now, I was at the prime rank, the prime age, you know, everything to, to, to be successful. You weren't going to get any more naturally fitter than what I would have been then. Um, you know, and I was already, I'd already been in the army at that stage for just over six years. So I knew the job well, well enough to bluff my way through selection. Um, but also, you know, you've got a little bit of, I had a little bit of grit and determination based on the fact that I'd failed this before. And, and when I fail something, I if I don't, if I fail the way I failed the SAS selection course, and it's that dramatic, that there is nothing going to stop me from passing the next time. And you know, I mean, now that I'm in Perth, and I say this as a joke to some of my SAS mates, if I'd known how great Perth was in 1997, I would have gone for SAS again. You know, because it is what it is. You know, commandos, SAS to me, it's just like special forces is what it is. And, and everything happens for a reason, and you know, time, time, time is everything. So, Bram, many people listen to the podcast and people like me have uh, watched these Special Forces documentaries about selection online, you know, Ranger Wing, SEALs, all that. Is it really, and these are obviously dramatised on TV for effect, but what's it really like? How, How tired do you really get? What's the, are you constantly just yearning for sleep and food? How mentally torturous is it? And can you tell us a little bit about as well, the low points when you feel like, oh, this is it. I'm, I'm done. I need to, I need to tap out here. I, I'm gone. I, I need to drop here and request. Or, how do you get through those low points? Because you talk about, you know, runs, ultra runs, or, or triathlons. I think many people go through that, and I'm interested to know what pushes you out of those dips and what makes you go. I know there's the why around failing the first time at the SAS, but what's the additional why that makes you? What gives you that inner dog? Ian, how many bloody questions do you want to ask in one question, mate? Like, that was like 12 questions there. Just answer the question. <laughs> I'll, start, I'll start with, let's start with sleep, because this is about sleep, right? So I was, this is from my personal experience being on, you know, two separate selection courses, but also from being the officer in charge of selection for one, I was the officer in charge of selection um, towards the end of my career. And I can tell you now that sleep is a tool. Um, we use it as a tool to help people select themselves out. So sleep deprivation. And we also use it as a tool to reward people for good work. So here's some sleep. And it's equally as effective. Um, now to answer, you know, how, how tired do you get? You know, you, you, there is a point on these courses when you become a shadow of yourself, sleep speaking wise. You don't know if you're asleep or awake. You're just going through the processes. And that's when you've probably been broken down to the essence of what makes you who you are. And, you know, I'm pretty good at, you know, I, I'm not, I don't fly off the handle about things. I'm, I'm pretty level-headed and have a, have a nice nature, I guess, most of the time. And I can get pushed to the point where I'll, you know, be quite abrupt and terse and, you know, bordering on violent without sleep. Um, and I think all of us do, and they want to see that. You know, we want we want to see you get to that point. Um, most people will get to that point, or they'll at least become ineffective in making decisions and, and the like. And for me, that w- that's about you know on less than four hours sleep, and that can be light sleep. It doesn't have to be deep sleep, but four hours of gonk time a night in a bag somewhere, 
you know anything under that i'm starting to to not be making good decisions or being very friendly to be around and then you know take it to extremes when you start talking about two or three days awake and not getting any sleep and and now it's you know you're either combat ineffective you're looking to pull the pin after two or three days um or you know or there's no mantra on earth that's getting you through this anymore you just need to sleep and your body will shut down and you will sleep and i've i've been walking and fallen asleep i've been talking to someone and fell asleep before you know um i mean i've been in, there was times in combat in afghanistan where i fell asleep during it i was that tired but on selection it's you're generally not taken to that point you're taken pretty close to it but you know there's other things that they want to get out of it they don't just want to break you for the sake of breaking you yeah i think that answers about three of your 12 questions all right <laughs> God, I feel like I'm getting interviewed here. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah. Here's a question for you that pops up from this and something I've talked about. Do you think sometimes we're missing out on good operators in special forces because they can't handle sleep? I'll tell you what. What we do find is that people are scared of the dark. That really surprised me. Really? Really, and I, and I don't mean any disrespect for those because there's people here who, who might be listening to this that would remember me as the officer in charge that might know that I know this about them. Obviously, no names, no no pack drills. But um, we'll put the names in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, but there is people who, and it really surprised me that there's people out there who are who who, are, who have night terrors or are scared of the dark as adults. Yeah, and that surprised me. I reckon maybe maybe I saw two in my time as the OC selection and I've heard of other guys hearing it as well that guys who when they're left out there by themselves in the dark just will, will, do not want to get out of bed or do, do not want to they just they just won't operate in it and I, I thought that was interesting yeah. that's interesting we had one guy when I was um, in infantry and we were training recruits coming in and I was a section commander uh, as a corporal and we had one guy that was he wore glasses during the day and, and he obviously got through the medical and obviously we don't have any oversight on that but come night he was just completely blind as a bat. He would just be, we had to tether him to another guy. And even then he was just like walking into holes, walking into trees, he knocked himself out one night. And it was just like, he just had to get like, you know, taken out of the military and there was no other roles from to go into. But that kind of surprised me, but being afraid and, and sort of night terrors and yeah, that's, that's right. And they got all the way to special forces training without. Yeah, and a selection and then, and, then it, and then it came out. They probably didn't realize that they were going to be exposed like that. I'm not sure, but. The other thing sleep does as well, you know, lack of sleep is people who, who sleep talk or sleep walk, when they start getting less and less and less sleep, that actually starts to become pronounced. Yeah, yeah. You can, you can, like I've had a couple of guys on selection that have got up and started walking off and we've had to pull them off because they've slept walked. And there's been guys who I've known in, in the commando unit who have, you know, I remember this one story, we were all down the range once, so we all had live ammunition and this, that and the other and you know, we're all asleep in the same room and some guy got up screaming and yelling, sat bolt upright in his bed. And I think, you know, we, we all thought at one point that perhaps someone had just gone mad with weapon and ammunition. And there was about 12 guys who've gone to action on their weapons thinking that this is going to, this is going to get real. And the guy was just, was fast asleep. You know, I've heard of that in, in other cases as well, you know, not on operations. That was actually in at Singleton during training. But um, I think those people are slowly weaned out now. You know, it's probably less less likely to take someone like that, and the question and answers of the psych interviews probably weeds those guys out as well. Yeah. What, what do you think, Bram? Is it too? Well, it doesn't have to be any number, but what are the success factors for somebody getting through a selection course? What What would you, if you were advising a, a you know, 
someone that was like between 1925 like oh i want to be in commanders or cs what were the three kind of maybe main things you would say to them? have a really good uh vo2 max for starters that's the first thing so so that your your metabolic conditioning um is up to the task so that you can recover there's no point no point hanging out and then not being able to recover and then get to the next thing and then be hanging out again um, I think the next thing is also physiological is be strong enough to carry the, the weights for long distances and be used to it. That's the other thing. It's hard to get used to carrying weight without carrying weight. And then probably the last thing is to understand influence, um, influence in the team environment, you know, understand the micro leaders and who to be able to, I hate using the word manipulate, but be able to, you know, go through and, and get those people on side because a lot of people are assessed out by their peers. Um, you know, or, you know, they might get asked, "Who do you not want in your team?" And if you're not a team player, if the rest of the teams don't see you as a team player, it doesn't matter how much metabolic conditioning or how strong you are. If they don't want to work with you, you're gone. So they're the three main things, and then be able to re- be able to eat food really quickly. Like, be, you know, if you get told to go into a mess hall or a tent, and there's a big banquet in there, stuff everything you can, get all the nutrients in. I understand, you know, how mitochondria works, how you know, how absorption of food works, what you're going to need to take on board to be able to get through the next thing and stuff it in your pockets if you can't fit it in your mouth. You know, that's my advice because you never know when you're going to get fed again. So we're recording this podcast here in my apartment and Bram did come over a little bit early and I did cook us up a nice big omelette with bits of meat and all sorts of stuff in that. And I did notice when I was, I served up Bram and said, you can just start eating yours. And when I turned around to fry my own, his was nearly gone. And that's actually encouraging to me because my wife gives out to me the whole time for eating too fast. But you're faster, mate, so that's great. So I'm, I'm, I never refuse food or water after capture, mate. And I don't know if you're a serial killer get me over here or what. Like, I'm going to eat. Because you might be putting me in a dungeon and putting lotion on the skin the next half an hour. I'm ready for that. Yeah, well, there's Buddhist pictures on the wall. There's a Buddha over there. Incense has been burned. There's a bookshelf. And, you know, I don't think, mate, there's any dungeon in here. There's barely enough room to get a couch in here. So you went through um, <laughs> your special force training. You're into the commandos. You're in the unit now. Um, you've gotten over all that training, you've got badged, you're wearing that nice, uh, is it a sandy, no, it's not sandy colour, is it green? Sherwood green. Sherwood green beret. Yep. Your chest is inflated now by about two foot, you're feeling grey, um, you're king dick as the man says. Now what happens? This is when the real stuff happens and all that training is, is kicked in, is, is, comes to, comes to, is going to have to come to fruition. You're going to do some reinforcement training, obviously you're going to get you know, a specialised training in different things. What was your first mission? If you're allowed to talk about that, where did you go? Yeah, I mean, really, in those early years, what we were doing is proving a concept. And so a lot of the training that we did, and I'm not going to get too in detail with this stuff because it's not, it's not my position really to, to push where we were or what we've done. That's for historians to do. But, you know, a lot of the stuff we did initially focused around parachute load follows with boats and, you know, the proof of concept of being able to get a company and strategically project them somewhere to do something. Um, yeah, and I, I write about this a lot in the next book that I'm writing, and, and in particular about, you know, that sort of mateship and leadership and, you know, and being at the pinnacle of sort of the Australian military. And, and what, what I noticed was really interesting was my intelligence directly increased proportionate to the equipment that I had to maintain. I actually, I'm not even making a joke there. So in the infantry battalion, I had a, an echelon bag and a trunk, and then I get to the commandos and I had a... You know, a trunk for amphibious operations, a trunk for you know mountain warfare. I had dive bags for counterterrorism stuff, and I had, you know, I had e perbs and had 
10 different blimmin' weapons once I started doing sniper. You know, once I became the sniper platoon commander or a Sierra 1 1, the lead sniper for the unit. So, you know, I, I do think there's something there's something in that. The more intricate your job becomes, the more equipment you've got to maintain, you know, the sort of the, the, the more, I don't know, I don't know where it's something to do with the, the brain memorizing things and you begin getting smarter as you go. I assume I was getting smarter. Or it could have just been that I was now 25, 26 and you start to become smarter at that age as well. Well, there's a good question, actually. Did some people drop out because of that? Did it become too much of a cognitive challenge for people in the reinforcement cycles where they just couldn't cut it? Yeah. So, yeah, it's a great question. And I think that probably reframe the question, you know, as opposed to... I didn't see people, obviously, dropping out because they of cognitive effect, per se. But I certainly saw people dropping out because they had no situational awareness, which is something... Which is a buzzword we use a lot in special forces. So if you're walking around with your head up your ass, you're not going to make it. You know, if you're if you're walking into a room and you don't know what's in that room in the first ten seconds, and you're probably just you know responding to stimulus as opposed to actively seeking information, you're not going to last very long in special forces. And then, if you're on a counter-terrorist team and you're moving through a stronghold looking for a terrorist, and you can't differentiate between a hostage and a terrorist based on photos that you've seen, you know you're you're not combat effective. So yeah, so so there's one there's a there's a big difference to me about being academically smart having street smarts, but also having a situational environmental smarts. You know, there's, there's different aspects to being smart. Mm. No, I fully agree with you there. Yeah, there's some academics I know that can't even tie their shoelaces, and there's some guys that tie their shoelaces and be awesome, but, you know, can't add two and two. So it's definitely relative to, to the situation. So um, on some of these first missions that you went on, and um, you operate in whatever size groups you operate in, and you're now you're in a very specialised unit, you're sent in for a strategic purpose, um, how did you manage sleep before you went into those things? Did you sleep um, strategically to, to bank up? And then how did you manage sleep when you were away for those days? Later on, later in, later in Afghanistan, that was certainly the case, doing reverse cycle operations and, you know, doing doing night missions and things like that. But in the early, like in 2001 in Afghanistan, uh, sorry, in um, Timor as the reconnaissance, uh, as one of the reconnaissance team commanders as a sergeant, you know, we, we were a five-man, six-man, sometimes a 12-man patrol and, you know, we would stagger our sleep and, you know, but the, the infantry, you know, platoons or sections will tell you about double staggered pickets. You know, we didn't have the luxury for that. So we had one man awake at any one time. And, you know, you really got to trust the guys you're with that no one's going to fall asleep. You don't want to be a six man reconnaissance patrol out there and all be asleep and have, you know, an enemy force, a militia or, you know, I guess Capacitus back then coming over the border and, you know, finding you. You know, so for us, it was all about um, being able to manage that sleep and then, Quite often we would do, instead of, I think that one of the things we would do is instead of having one picket a night, we'd sometimes break it into two because they were so long. So rather than doing a four-hour or a three-hour stint, we'd do an hour and a half at one either end of the sort of sleep cycle. Yeah. Um, not optimal. And not everyone responded well to that either. Like some guys were all for that. And some, like for me, I'd want to get up at three in the morning and be awake all day and all, you know, all the next day. But some guys would want to get up, you know, 10 to 11 and then get up again at 4 to you know, 5.30, something like that. So how did you manage the kind of different chronotypes of people? Was it just by sort of decision by consensus and have a bit of a chat or did you just make a call? Yeah, just make a call. You, 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 you're not in a position. It's like in a different industries, you, sometimes you're not in a position to you know, pander to everyone's different um, rhythms, you know, sleep rhythms and the like. So, um, yeah, you try and get as much rest as you can in the, in the days leading up to a mission, especially in an OP or something like that. Observation post, um, 
and then you would just you know some sometimes if you're on an observation post you'd sleep during the day sleep during the night it'd be great you get lots of sleep but then if you're on a long range sort of you know patrol where you're walking for days and days then you know you might get you might get two or three hours sleep a night depending on what the task is any specific time of night that you would um, want to sleep so would you say like we'll keep going till two in the morning and sleep till six or would you tend to want to go to sleep the minute it got dark and then get up around 12 or would that depend on where you are and when you wanted to move yeah nothing as specific as that i mean it would depend on the mission we had some missions in afghanistan and i used to make my guys walk a lot in afghanistan if they're listening to this they're laughing now because that was a joke because we'd take our vehicles in one direction i'd make the guys walk in another um, and that's just all tactics, but um, you know we would walk 20 kilometres in a night, and then be up all day, and then we would sleep in the afternoon with our vehicles when they'd arrived, and then maybe walk in, you know in the opposite direction the next night and sleep in the afternoon. But you've got to weigh that up with the temperature that it is. If it's if it's if it's stifling, they're not sleeping even under shade, you know. So you've got to weigh all that stuff up. Yeah, it's pretty difficult, isn't it? Because you know you're not out there as a sleep scientist; you're there as a military commander, and you're trying to get a job done. So it's hard to to balance all those things, including the mission, you know, the mission uh, objectives, diet, nutrition, time of day, when you got to be somewhere at a certain time, because there's so many different variables that's in the way. Yeah, we, we talked about this before. Like there would be, there was a couple of um, raids that I went on, you know, uh, as an operations officer. So I wasn't a platoon commander at the time, and they went in about 4:30 in the morning. And I remember walking from three to, you know, 4:30, and it was almost like an out-of-body experience. It was that tired, and it was dark, and everything everything's grey and green because you've got Ninox on and, you know, night vision goggles on and everything's sort of grey and green and, you know, you, you, you're sort of separate. Your body's doing this walking thing but you don't realise it is. Well, you know it is but you're not really in tune with what's going on. You're just seeing a vision, you know, and you get into the target and then, then it all becomes very real and you get snapped out of it. But, yeah, and I know that there's some science behind that um, but that would be the case more often than not. But we got really good at working at night and... In Afghanistan, since we're now there talking about it, you know, especially when I was a platoon commander, sleep hygiene, getting guys to be able to sleep in really darkened environments during the day, and then and then making sure they got up, you know, after sundown, go and have a big feed, you know, ready, and it was like having breakfast, and then we would roll out the front gate and go and do a mission all night, and then might have four or five hours the next next day to decompress and be awake during sunlight, but then they'd be back asleep again at you know two in the afternoon. So very similar to classic shift workers, you know, in, in factories or mining or so on, where at different hours. Yeah, but more, yeah, I think as opposed to sort of a six to six shift in the mining, yeah, you, you, you sort of, some days you're doing, you know, you might go to bed at two, other days you might go to bed at nine in the morning, you know, and then, yeah, it would really depend. And then you might get, you could just get, because the enemy gets a vote, right? So you might get jerked out of sleep and have to defend the base for bloody three or four hours, and then you might get two or three hours sleep. <laughs> yeah, some people are like, oh my God, that would drive me crazy. Um, so the guys are doing these kind of irregular patterns at regular times. Do you think that some of the kind of what we call, um, well, I, I believe there's some kind of inherent error-proofing in military operations. You pack your bag the same, you put your wetsuit on, sorry, your rain gear on one side of your bag, ammo on the other side. You walk in a certain fashion when you're on a patrol. Everybody's using the same kind of weapon. The orders are the same. We know if one guy goes down, the next guy can take over. Do you think that kind of layering of that layered approach of um, systems in the military helps people kind of uh, provide a backup for sleep deprivation? So they kind of auto go into this autopilot. Do you think that's a yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a you've got a structure. You've got a, you got fallback plans. You you understand second, third order effects already. You know. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I talk about the enemy, the enemy commander the next day doesn't know that you're coming to meet him. So you're planning everything in time and space conceptually the day before. And so, you know, I know I'm going to get a full night's sleep tonight because at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning I'm coming to get you. He doesn't know that yet. He's out watering his crops or talking about changing PKM machine guns with, you know, RPG rocket launchers. You know, then they have no idea that we're coming, for instance. So that when you do get out there, you know, you're fully rested. He could have been up all night, blooming, you know, doing whatever, planning something or, you know, digging something in somewhere that he shouldn't be, you know, and then and now I'm going to keep him awake another however many hours. And so my decision cycle is, is you know, very, very small compared to his decision cycle because everything that he's now um, experiencing, that I've already set that up for him. And sure, there might be some setbacks. There might be an IED that we hit or... You know, something we trip or a guy might get shot because the enemy gets a vote, as I always say. But that's okay because I've already I've already gone down every avenue, every permutation of what he can do, second, third order effects. But I did that, you know, almost like, it's almost like time travel. I did that yesterday. Yesterday I dealt with this problem today and now I know what to put in place. So you can go into, and, and it's the same with a base defense. If you've got a really good base defense, you know, it doesn't matter that you're tired. Like you read the first you know, Matt Rick's book, you know, um, The Fighting Season, and that's a classic base defense at the start. And it's based on a true story. And the fact of the matter is, you've got these things in place. You've got all these procedures in place, these tactics, techniques, procedures to fall back on. It doesn't matter if you get ripped out of bed at two o'clock in the morning. Someone somewhere has hit a red button, and now you just go through a process until you until the crisis is contained. So you're almost harnessing or lassoing chaos. So it doesn't matter that you're tired. Whereas, you know, you, if something happens in your home and you're not ready for that, you know, the house is on fire or something like that and you haven't planned for that and the smoke alarm goes off and it's two in the morning, you get up and you don't know what to do. Or an earthquake. You, you step left, you step right, do you move straight, do you grab which kid do you grab out of bed, do you get the dog? You know, you've got all these different permeations of that plan that you now have to triage. Whereas we don't have to do that. It's already been done. I know what to do going through those scenarios you've got good scenario planning in place and you just fall into you know plan a b c or d i think business could do a lot of that god you know, you've absolutely not they are just re- oh my god i don't even know where to start with that because they they are flat-footed you know generally speaking most businesses are flat-footed because they 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 look over their shoulder at their competition rather than looking at the second third order effects of their own decisions uh, i fully agree with you and the other thing as well as they, they use the word dynamic which means to just react to to shit basically and that's their whole strategy is just to react, react, react to market forces or, you know, as an example. But it drives me crazy. We use, we use sleep as a weapon as well. I mean, you've heard me say that before too, sleep as a weapon. You know, I, in my personal life, I, I'd sleep more often than not if I can. But against the enemy, you know, there's a reason that we're, there's a reason that we're there, you know, two hours before dawn. It's because we're dragging them out of their, you know, comfort zone. We're, we're, we know that we're coming. They don't know that. You know, and, and, and there's a reason that they were really unpopular in Afghanistan, those night missions, because they, they, it doesn't win the hearts and minds of the people because you're pulling bad guys out of good people's homes sometimes. And you've got to weigh all that up. You know, if you start blowing doors in every night, every morning, at two in the morning, you're going to get the population offside. And I think we only started to really understand that towards the end of Afghanistan, you know, that we really should have been doing other stuff, perhaps. You know, what we were using a almost a World War Three type, you know, set up against, you know, what were at the end, the Taliban at the end really were more crooks and criminals and um, people who were taking advantage of, 
you know, corrupt systems. Yeah. yeah. And we're getting the whole population offside as a result. <laughs> okay, so let's fast forward um, through, Bram. You, you decided to um, to leave the military um, and you commenced a new career into a new cycle or a new phase of... Uh, well, yeah, you're in sort of, like, like me, you're in all sorts at the moment, but kind of predominantly you've, you've been an author for the last few years um, and you wrote your first book. And um, What was that process like? Was that, uh, that must be completely crazy to go from being an operational military guy to sitting down on a computer typing away um yeah so i've told this story a few times before um i was getting paid by alan and unwin to to do some fact checking on chris master's first book uncommon soldier and i was sitting in a cafe somewhere and um you know, it was a melbourne cafe and there was all the sort of yummy mummies coming in you know after they've dropped the kids off and they were having their chai lattes and it was raining outside it's winter and i'm typing away you know writing some amendments to chris's work which didn't need much done to it and then i realized you know what i'm getting paid for this this is awesome i'd love to do this full time and so i started talking to his publisher and you know um the wonderful rebecca and she said hey would you like to write some fiction and i like to call it faction because it's more you know it's a little bit of fact mixed with fiction and um, for me, the fighting season, sitting down writing, that was a really cathartic experience. You know, I got to make up a whole lot of stories. I got to make, you know, a few enemy enemies that, you know, that I, that I, that I wanted to kill off and people I wanted to deal with, you know, in, in the book. Um, and, you know, and while some people would think that some of those characters are based on people who are really alive, that's, that's just not the case. There are, they really are perme- permutations of of events that happened in my head and then and how I wish that I could have dealt with them yeah. um so yeah so I loved it and and I guess that I didn't understand there was a creative side to myself until after I left the military because but then I look back on it and I look back at briefs I used to write for some of the generals and I look back on you know I look back on some of the um the plans that we used to come up with for the counterterrorism, you know team and I realized that I just I reveled in that creative you know um result the end result of doing something creative and so writing the fighting season was something really creative for me and also i i managed to juggle that with doing my degree and raising two boys and supporting my wife and her job and so really it became very very much a structured um, thing that i had to do and it became a purpose and because i had a purpose when i left the military it made the transition so much easier and I do think that a lot of guys leave the military and they, they think they're... Some of them think they've got PTSD. I'm sure there's some guys that do. And, I've, you know, I'm, I'm obviously a big advocate for... I'm not... I'm completely anti-snowflake, for starters. I think get out, be stoic, bloody... And find a purpose. You know, don't, don't think that there's PTSD in everything you've ever done. There's traumatic growth, for sure. And I'm sure there's some people out there, contextually, who are messed up from their military service. But they shouldn't confuse that with, you know, a a type of, um, you know, I've just left the military and I've lost my purpose, and now I have, you know, some sort of a, a disorder from 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 not having anything, you know, to to, you know, to sort of hang my hat on. I think there's, that's a completely different thing, and you know, I've had I've heard psychologists say that they like to call everything PTSD because they, they can't get funding to help other people with mental health issues. And, you know, we've all got mental health. Our mental health is something you need to look after. And if you leave the military and you've got nothing to, you know, nothing to do, and I, I, would, have been, I would have been messed up too if I'd left and then didn't have a purpose. But I gave myself a purpose and it wasn't, you know, it didn't pay particularly well with the book. 
I mean, the publisher made a lot of money out of it, I'm sure. You know, but it gave me a sense of purpose, as did the second book and the third book. And, and you know, it was a gentle way to leave the military for me. Hmm. Yeah. We unpacked a lot of shit then, and, and I really should do it justice by going into detail on some of the points that I raised. Um, but, you know, I, I guess this isn't the time and place to do that. But I will say, if there's anyone who does feel that they've got PTSD, then they need to, you know, go and get that help that they need, and, and, and they have to understand there's people that will help them. But... If you think that you probably don't have that, but you don't know what's going on, chances are that you've got you know some sort of depression from you know n- now not being you know not having something that you're you know some sort of purpose that's really strongly related to what you spent you know five, ten, fifteen in my case twenty years doing. Yeah. I couldn't fully I fully agree with you. I think it's an excellent point. You'd I be think. How many people don't agree? You'd be surprised how many people are really looking for a gold card or an easy option. And, I'm not, and that's not everyone, but you'd be surprised how many people are wrecking it for people who truly are affected. Now, you know, I've, I've been through, you know, through, through a lot in my military career. I lost five, I think it was five last time I counted, Bushmasters to IED blasts in Afghanistan. There's three, three definite that we blew in place and two that were wrecked. Um, I've had... I've had blooming Taliban snipers try and take my head off and very nearly succeed. I've stepped in an IED and... And, and the thing didn't go off because the batteries were flat. I've seen a couple of my guys bloody, you know, critically injured, you know. And so I've been, so I think I'm more qualified than most people to say, don't be a friggin' snowflake, you know. Don't think that what you've got is PTSD just because, you, 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 you know, you, there's something going on. Go and get a professional, you know, perhaps outside the military, some professional help and see, see what's going on and, and find out. Because I've seen a guy completely shut down because of, you know, multiple IED blasts, you know, throwing up. And he was, he had, he had what we would refer to in World War II as some sort of a, you know, um, you know, uh, shock, shell shock, you know, completely different. And then you've, you've got other people who say, look, I'm, I'm really messed up from, you know, my time in Minhad Air Base in, in the UAE. Probably not. Probably depressed because you've left the military. You know, and I, and I, and I'm, I know I make enemies when I say this sort of shit, but at the end of the day, you know, mental health, everyone's got some sort of mental health they look out and need to look after. Yeah. I think mental health is like physical health. You're going to have some good days and some bad days, you know. Um, you know, I'm prone to, you know, periods or bouts of depression and, and purpose. But I think to get to get me through that and what other people, I, you talk about stoic approach and stoic philosophy. And that's why I like stoicism, Taoism and Buddhism, because it's kind of like, it's just the way it is. You're going to have good and bad, yin and yang, up and down, in and out. It's It's always going to change. But that's where the discipline and the kind of getting up and doing the same thing every day and having a, will help you, even when you don't have a sense of purpose, by having some discipline and routine will help you achieve a sense of purpose or, or f- help you find that purpose. And if you have a purpose, going back to that discipline and routine is going to help you stay on track to it. So, and I, I think it's interesting because, um, you know, what you say about PTSD, a lot of people, even non-military people say they have PTSD from different events in their life. And I'm like, mm, really? Or is it just a bit traumatic? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, not... You know, the, the, the thing that's going to happen to me probably in five or ten years' time is something's going to trigger it and I'm going to break down, have a nervous breakdown and, and probably be told I've got PTSD. Got it. That'll be, you know, I'll eat the humble pie if I've got to eat the humble pie then. But, you know, the reason I went and did a half Ironman, you know, at speed was because I'm like, you know what, I can do I can do anything. You give me a challenge, I'll go and do it. And if that challenge for you is, look, I'm depressed and I need to get over it, fine. Find something. Find a purpose. Do it. Grab a hold of it and move on. But... Yeah, I don't do, you know, if someone has been beaten down to the point where they're non-combat effective, yeah, I get that. Go and get help, you know, and I'll, I'll be the first one to support you. 
you know, because I, I know people with PTSD. I know people with true PTSD. But if you're just depressed, you know, go and get a purpose and fucking grip life up because you're not here for very long. I can tell you that because, you know, my, my unit lost the bulk of the, you know, combat troops in Afghanistan. I know a lot of guys in their prime that were cut down and killed, you know, and then, we, and then guys since then, you know, and we don't even talk statistics of how many service people create, you know, have uh, you know commit suicide or whatever because the the statistics are, are you know they're all they're all over the shop and they 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 will support anyone who wants them to be supported, but you know primarily speaking if you're well set up for combat, if you've got good training, and if you've if you've sort of um, got your brain to the point where you know that you're going to go into combat, then the chances are that you're going to deal with it well, you know and and as Dan Pronk says, you know there is growth to come out of that you know to come out of those those events but you know what i can see is that people who've been ripped out of one job and then thrown completely into a really dangerous job where they're not ready for yep i get it i get that completely because i had that happen to me and i had to deal with it you know and and but again that just it just is what it is it's life you know it's not gonna be smooth sailing isn't it more, yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's that old thing. I think you said it last week when we were speaking. Is if you have a problem? Yeah, I do. I, I'm, 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 I'm a hundred percent have always slept on my problems. You know, even to the point where if I'm, you know, slept on your problems, not slept with your problems. Well, I did a bit of that when I was younger. Um, yeah, but I, I completely, you know, if something's bothering me, I'll just hibernate. You know, however long it takes, and and generally when you wake up, things are, things feel a little bit better. Um, yeah, I've never taken. Uh, any sleeping aids or anything like that but um, yeah I sort of know how to sleep hack as well you know I know what to do I've read a, read a lot of stuff a lot of literature about it listen to podcasts Ben Greenfield you know that sort of thing back in the back in the day and so you know we are each our own experiment yeah and it's interesting you say that because another controversial controversial figure uh, is a guy called Jordan B. Peterson who uh, you know is getting very famous and he talks about 12 rules for life and kind of I think you will be a fan of his work um, as I am um, but in saying that as well he also talks about with sleep for example if you have depression or mental health issues or you're, you're looking for a purpose the first thing he advocates is get up every day at the same time the second thing he advocates if you have a problem you're feeling stressed eat something that has high fat wait 20 minutes see how you feel he says those two just those two things alone can have dramatic improvements for people's mental health and their ability to solve problems yeah yeah i would fully agree with that just thinking back as you said that to the last time yeah i mean i've i've been rattled by things before you know people emails you know people stabbing you in the back whatever it is you know social media is one way to bring you unstuck as well i think but um I like to have some rules around that sort of stuff too. So on the weekends, I like to try and minimise any social media engagement. Um, you know, bef- generally speaking, nine o'clock at night, I like to be in bed if I can. I like to work out in the evenings and the mornings. I get up at five, you know, but if I'm feeling tired, I'll sleep. You know, simple as that. And I'll take naps on the weekend. You know, I'm 45. You know, there's, there's for, for me, you live longer if you sleep more. I was fully, I've always fully thought that, you know, fully agreed with that concept. You know, you've got to sleep, sleep to live longer. There you go, people. So if you don't want to listen to me, listen to Major Bram Connolly telling you to go to bed. I'm and I'm 45, look at me. Well, it is true. There's not one grey hair in his head where my head is completely white. He looks like he's 22. Um, I played a lot of Nintendo in those early days and slept a lot. And the infantry battalion didn't do much work. I just sort of slept. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> so, Bram, um, 
coming up to the end of, of our, our discussion today, I want you, can you give us a bit of an overview of this new book you have underway and what it's going to do and um, what it's going to try and communicate to people and where they, where they can get it as well? Yeah, I can't release a title yet because, not for <laughs> You don't know the title yet? <laughs> uh, no, it's one of those contractual things, but primarily it's, uh, it's a, you know, I don't like using life coach because that's a just dick term. It's sort of a lifestyle engineering. Well, what it really is, I guess, in some ways, it's all the lessons that I've learned that I'm, I'm really writing it for my sons, I guess. And I'm, I'm writing it based on all the experiences I've had and the things that I've done wrong in my military career, primarily things I've stuffed up. And, um, you know, I'll give you an example of that in a minute. And then, and then I'm, I'm writing a chapter with a bottom line up front of each of those. And, and, and it's based around leadership, being, being a better human, you know, being, being a better person in society based on these um, yeah, experiences that I've had over a 20-year career and beyond. And some of those are traumatic experiences that, that have a, um, you know, some sort of lesson that came out of it. And some of them are really menial things that all of a sudden I gleaned some philosophical moment and I've just captured that. And so, you know, the wider population will, will have an advantage from re- reading something that I'm providing for, for my two sons as they get older. Um, I think that's really, and really it's about me probably not deserving to be in special forces, probably not deserving to win a distinguished service medal for leadership and combat, probably not deserving to, you know, to have two now three books published and, and, you know, a beautiful wife and a great bloody, great couple of kids and a dog and that. But the reality of it is it's all the stuff in between all the amazing stuff that you do that is life. And so it's being, it's being, it's being in charge of that stuff, the minutiae. And that's what this book is about. It's about you know being thankful, being thankful for those, the grey areas in between all the amazing shit. How did I get there? How did this happen? And was it because I was just the average guy? You know, and if I was the average guy, perhaps it was just because I, I was average and had to try harder than everyone else to do something amazing. I don't think anyone can do anything amazing. You've just got to set your mind to it. You know, and fail selection when you're 19 years old. That just that drives you for the rest of your life. That. Yeah, well, I attempted special forces selection in my career and I failed. And I tell you one thing, it's still been the uh, the underlying fire for me doing ultramarathons and other stuff. It's actually driven me. I remember like I was in Leadville and I went and ran Leadville 100 mile altitude and I dropped out at the 88 mark, 88 miles, puking into a bag, dizzy and a whole host of excuses I can give you here and stuff that happened leading into the event. I went back the next year, which I call redemption year, and nobody was taking that away from me. I said to my wife, I have to crawl. I don't give a shit about the 30 hour time limit. I am, I am finishing this race. And I finished like in 27 hours, 42 minutes and 14 seconds. I remember every part of it. But I tell you, man, at four o'clock in the morning when I was dizzy and it was dark and I was cold and walking along, I was thinking about things I'd failed in my life. And I was like, fuck this. I ain't doing this again. I am failing here. Yeah, you, you, mate, you asked me before about a mantra. And, you know, I, and, I, and my good friend Dan, Dan Pronk said it in, in a, in a uh, Instagram post once about just one more step. And I, I had exactly the same mantra as he did because it's probably a common one. But for me, it's like, just, just go one more step, just one more step. And my breathing will start to, to do it. And my mind will do it. And then I'll look up and go, just get to that light pole. And there's been times when I've had, you know, there's no failure in walking. There's been times when in a, in a half marathon, I've had to start walking because I've gone too hard. You know, it's like, okay, I'll run to the next pole, just, just to the next pole, and then I'll walk to the next pole, and then I'll run to the next one. Now I'll try and run to the second one. You know, and it's, you know, having, put, putting your brain into some sort of um, e-stress, e-stress, whatever you want to call it, 
and being able to operate through it, you know, and then having the rhythm of your breathing. There's something to rhythm in breathing with, I haven't worked it out yet, but there's definitely something to rhythm in your breathing and keeping you going. You know, and if, you, if, you're, if you're erratic and your breathing's going all over the shop and you're panting, it's not the same. You get that from sprinting. But if, you've just, if you can do a constant pace and have a three-in, three-out breathing structure and, and then change that as well because then you've got equal side lung engagement, I guess. You know, I'm, the, I'm no you know, PT guy, but yeah, that's sort of... Um, there's something to that. And there's something to having a mantra, having something to fall back on, you know, and whatever it is stuff bram thank you very much um so where can people get your books today where can i find you online is there a website they can go to where can they buy all your cool stuff yeah god i've monetized everything no but seriously um just www.bramconnolly.com is the website um, where guys can buy books or guys and girls can buy books from amazon and and the like and um, we've got Warrior U as well which is www.warrioru.com.au which is the um the website that I run, it's a mentor website for people who want to join the ADF and we sort of help people through that, mentor them through that process um, and the money that go, comes in from, from that goes back into the website itself so we don't make any money off that. Um, yeah, LinkedIn, Instagram, all the usual places but don't try and contact me after 9 o'clock at night or on the weekends. That's great. <laughs> Major Bram Connolly, DSM, thank you very much. Cheers. Just need some place where I can leave my head. Hey, Buster, can you tell me where a man might find a bed? He just grinned and shook my hand. No, was all he said.
This episode of Sleep for Performance Radio is brought to you by Orbiz. Orbiz are a global consulting firm who facilitate the rapid delivery of significant and sustainable improvements in performance across a diversity of industries. They facilitate turnaround, transformation and strategic improvement programs through the development and implementation of a system and culture of lean and continuous improvement. Now Orbis are growing their global presence across the Asia-Pacific region, Europe, Middle East, Africa and the Americas. Their range of services include optimization of business development systems to deliver growth, true to operating system improvements that reduce cost by improvements in safety, quality and productivity. So what this means for your business, typically they will give you outcomes such as a reduction in cost, who can beat that, increasing capacity utilization, throughput, increase in revenue, profitability and overall customer value and satisfaction. Orbis have extensive experience in facilitating change in challenging environments by utilizing lean tools and methodology, joining engagements across the world, including diverse um, sectors and industry, such as mining, energy, construction, transport, aerospace, manufacturing and healthcare. Orbis people are industry professionals driven to achieve sustained results through the development of trusted relationships. So head over to www.orbiz.io, that's Orbiz, O-R-B-I-Z.io, for more information, get in contact with them to organize a visit today to your organization. This episode of Sleep for Performance Radio is also brought to you by Sleep WA, Western Australia. Now, Sleep WA is one of the only few nationally accredited sleep laboratories in Western Australia, meaning that they have put their services and quality systems to the test against the national standards. 
They provide commitment and dedication by providing you a high quality service. Now, I've worked with these guys before. They are excellent. Um, they are a very diligent business and one that is trusted here in Western Australia. Sleep WA is one of the only sleep and respiratory centres to provide holistic care and treatment for all sleep and respiratory disorders, not just obstructive sleep apnea, which many people would have hear, heard about in, uh, in the news or in, in the scientific literature or even on this podcast. So Sleep WA believe that all patients deserve compassion, support, multiple treatment options and education to allow them to actively participate in their own journey to better health. Sleep WA provides a comprehensive service to diagnose and recommend treatment of all respiratory diseases and sleep disorders. This includes rare sleep disorders and those complicated by cardiovascular disease. The Sleep WA philosophy is to offer patients expert diagnosis, effective therapy and supportive guidance on the road to better health and sleep. They are a leader in respiratory and sleep medicine and provide the following service at locations throughout Western Australia. Consultation with experienced specialists, comprehensive respiratory testing for lung disease, asthma and allergies, inpatient sleep studies, home-based sleep studies, that's pretty handy, insomnia management programs for insomnia and circadian disorders, and fatigue management programs to reduce risk and improve health in the workplace. So get started on your journey towards better health and sleep today and head over to Sleep WA, that's WA for Western Australia, and get in contact with Dion and Jack over there. This episode is also brought to you finally by Fatigue Science. The Fatigue Science Ready Band is a wearable device that helps you improve safety and your performance through the science of sleep. The Ready Band is a way more than just a sleep tracker. It's the world's only sleep measurement tool that's paired with safety, a biomechanical fatigue model, which has a predictive algorithm. So what that means is it's actually predicting to the future what your performance is going to be based upon your data. This was initially developed by the US Army Research Lab and was uh, built to improve the performance of soldiers in operational environments. Now this device has been adapted to work in elite athletes and industrial workers. This is also a device that I have validated in the laboratory myself and I have used extensively in industry and research applications. As listeners of this podcast, you probably know that restorative sleep is about more than just the numbers of hours of sleep you get, factors like when you sleep, how much sleep that you have accrued, and even your local um, geographical location, so a sunset, the time you go to bed, the time the sun comes up, all of these things are all these different factors in chronobiology um, that affect your performance. So this ready band was developed to incorporate all these factors that can really help you understand the real impact of sleep on your life. So ReadyBand not only helps you track changes to your fatigue over time, but also allows you to discover new ways to achieve personal fatigue improvement goals so you can actually measure the improvements that you're making uh, as you go. Now, ReadyBand is is relied on by lots of different organizations and they've got a very impressive resume. So winners of the Super Bowl, Seattle Seahawks have used this, the Chicago Cubs have used this, military special forces and workers who operate in uh, long shifts in dangerous environments such as tunneling underground, mining, oil and gas. Uh, it's been used in elite sports such as rugby, basketball, um, it's been used at the Australian Institute of Sport, it's been used in uh, elite MMA athletes who compete in the UFC, so it's a wide variety of applications. So if fatigue is important to you and your organization, whether you're a sports team or industrial workforce, head to fatiguescience.com, that's fatiguescience.com, to speak to a member of their team and to learn more about how the ReadyBand can improve safety and performance in your organization. Thank you for listening to these ads, now on to the episode. 